Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 235, and today's guest is Billy Libby, co-founder and CEO of Upper 90. On Upper 90's website, you'll find the following phrase. It's not how much you raise, it's how much you own. It's a very compelling statement that makes a ton of sense, yet every day in the world of tech news, there's a concentration on the size of the round and the company's valuation. Well, wouldn't it be cool if they also reported how much of the company the founders still own? Since the entrepreneurs are the ones taking the most risk, shouldn't we celebrate their ownership stake instead? Upper 90 is working on solving this exact challenge as the firm aims to help founders keep more of their ownership by potentially delaying or even skipping their Series A round of funding. They do this by leveraging alternative forms of financing like debt to provide the capital for the company's growth. The firm is focused on e-commerce and fintech businesses and have been first investors in companies like Thrasio, ClearBank, and several others. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like common mistakes that founders make as it relates to equity and fundraising, Billy's background story in terms of his time at Wharton, and his experience in the financial services industry, which focused on building electronic trading businesses and exchanges, what led him and his co-founder Jason Finger down the path of creating Upper 90, all the details on their investment thesis and how their model works, hiring advice for founders on building out your initial leadership team, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, improves productivity, and drives revenue. Get more out of your content with packages starting at just $79 a month, plus you can get 10% off select packages by using our code FIZZ20, that's F-I-Z-Z-2-0, at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Billy. Billy, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Keith. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you because, uh, you know, I, I talked to lots of investors on this program. It's, you know, a combination of investors and entrepreneurs. So there's lots of information that I think people get out of this. And this is a topic that I don't think is discussed enough out there. And it's really core to what your firm is about. And we're going to talk about how your firm breaks this down or provides, you know, different investment opportunities and financing for startups. But there's a uh, slogan on your website that says, it's not how much you raise, it's how much you own there is a better way to fund your startup. So I thought that was a good kind of leaping off point of like, what are the common mistakes that founders don't really think about as it relates to equity and fundraising? Thanks so much for, for bringing it up. And we spent a lot of time trying to think about what we, why do we start up our 90? What are we providing? And, and to synthesize it down into that was something that just kind of happened recently. Um, We've been doing it for a long time, but I think for founders, when you're raising your business and you're in survival mode, often it's, we've been conditioned to raise more than we need. And I think the method of capital raising for startups is venture capital. And as venture capital fund sizes have gone up, they need to put more money into startups. And so if you look at the venture industry, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, and I learned a lot of this from my partner, Jason Finger, who started Seamless and, and Grubhub, the funds back then were, were very small. And over time, they become very big. And so they used to be highly aligned with the founders. And as they get larger, it creates potential for misalignment. So I, I think that as a founder, it's how much do I need? And how do I think about looking at credit and equity at the same time? Because so many of the founders we speak with say, look, I raised all of my equity and now I'm looking to raise debt. And you just get into this method where the only way you can keep raising credit, which really gives you leverage in much more efficient scale is to raise more equity. So it's how do you think about credit when you're raising equity, not after? How do you think about what is the right amount of equity you need, not what the fund wants? And number three is who is the right partner for you at this stage of your growth? And I think so many of these funds are trying to put like, what's the smallest amount of money I could put in 
to then have the option if your business works to put in more later. And we've kept our fund manageable and there's a lot of other great seed funds where each position they do now matters to their fund. And so I think it's very, who's aligned with you now, not if it works. Well, one of the things that you brought up that I have definitely read about several times as an entrepreneur, if they're providing you more, take more, right? There is that advice out there that I've read many times. So how, how would you counteract that? Well, I think that you always want to be overcapitalized, you know, because you don't know your pivots. You don't know challenges that you can't control. Um, But it's about how to put together the right group of investors. So, and it's not applicable for every business, but you should get some equity and you should get some debt. And if you just think about it, if we take a step back, like some of the simplest things are the best ideas. Like a simple recipe is often the hardest, but it's the best recipe in food. So if we just take a step back, every part of our life has become highly personalized. Data is capturing every movement we have. So if we both watch Netflix tonight, you will see a different homepage of Netflix than me. And everyone on this call will actually see a different set of recommendations. If we all are on our phone looking at Instagram, each one of us will get a different app. And so data has allowed hyper-personalization. And when I thought about Upper 90, we said, why hasn't that level of tailored or personalized capital come to startup. So if you want to grow, you raise equity. And so that's a very blunt tool. It's an important tool. But isn't it crazy to think of, you know, I'm buying inventory, which I expect to sell, or I'm spending a dollar on marketing, which I expect to get a return on. Why, or I'm, or I'm buying a business that has some revenue. Um, why would I be spending the same dollar on something that has more predictability? than spending a dollar on hiring somebody or spending a dollar on my technology. So if we're all just like at the simplest form, startups very early on should say, okay, what are my, we're not saying raise less, we're saying what are my capital needs? And figuring out how to bring in people or investors that can solve those specific capital needs. And that could be inventory, equipment, marketing. Like, so I think upper 90 says, just raise less equity and then bring in somebody like Upper 90 that can also complement that by giving you more efficient capital for the healthier part of your business versus using equity for everything. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense, kind of how you position it that way. Because if there's predictability, why would you um, sell equity? <laughs> that is, you know, hopefully the outcome of your business if there is an exit. So um, now, Totally makes sense. Let's let's like we're gonna unpack a little bit more of how Upper Ninety does that in terms of the financing and options that you provide to uh, to your portfolio companies. But let's rewind the clock on you. So uh, where did you grow up, and what were you like as a child? Yeah, it's fun. I haven't thought about that in in a long time. So I grew up in Bethesda, Maryland, and I think as a child, I was I was very competitive. I you know I love playing sports. I played competitive soccer and tennis. And, and one of the other, you know, memories that I have was I was always negotiating. I was always trying to buy and sell things. I remember when I was five or six years old, I had one of those, I guess, you know, kind of trucks or, you know, that you would pull and I put all of my toys and my sister's toys on it. And I was going house to house, trying to get them to buy the toys that I had. And then I was, you know, when I got to a house with another kid, I was trying to trade for toys that I, wanted. And so I think just always the trading and negotiating mentality and, and, you know, kind of enjoyed that interaction and I guess competitive element of it too. And then you, you know, talked about playing soccer and you went on to play soccer at Penn and you went to Penn to study economics and business management finance. So talk about your experience at Penn. Yeah, Penn was great. And I, you know, I, I've always been a believer, big believer of 
there's only so much that we know at the early stages of our life. And so trust people that have seen a lot more situations than, than I have. And so my dad, for example, said, you should apply to Wharton. I was like, I was 18 years old or seven. I had never heard of Wharton. You know, I had heard of UPenn. He's like, so, you know, I said, okay. He's like, trust me. Like, if you can get into the business school, you want to be in that business school. Then you don't have to. So, okay, I trust you. Like, you have my best interests and you see more of these situations. And so, you know, and then he said he was involved in a company called Telebank. My dad was a small business owner and lawyer for small businesses. You know, always worked for himself. And he had gotten into, involved with a company called Telebank, which was the first online bank. And so I was an intern there my high school summer. And the wow. stock in 1999, the stock went public when I was there. It opened at 13 and closed at 100. You know, kind of the hype. <laughs> right. But I just think be open-minded and, and kind of take on new challenges. And it was a wonderful experience. And, you know, at Penn, I, I kind of took the same thing. I just wanted to learn. And so one summer I worked at the White House with the Clintons. One summer I, I worked in Hong Kong doing investment banking. And so when I left Penn and played soccer there um, and met great friends and, and just really appreciate that experience, I you know, didn't know what, I, all I knew is I wanted to do something that was more fast paced and had some technology component in it. And I don't know about you, but when I graduated in 2003, I had, I never knew that private equity existed. I never knew that venture capital existed. And, and as I look back and as actually, as we're just talking about this now, most founders, I bet if you said, look, you could raise credit, like they're like, I had no idea that it even was a possibility. Like, exactly. you know, I'm a startup, like, I have a high rate of failure. Like, why would somebody give me any money that's not equity? And so I just think there's a lot of like, you don't know what you don't know. And and I wish I had known about, you know, those industries when I started, but, you know, I, you know, ended up going into Goldman and, and more the traditional sales and trading route, but um, it's, yeah. Well, so you did spend quite a bit of time in uh, financial services at Goldman and Barclays. So talk about your experience there and kind of the things that you were working on, as well as what those you know early beginnings taught you. Sure. So I was very lucky. Um, the first person I interviewed with at Penn was a gentleman named Paul Germain, who's, at, who's a president of Stone Ridge and NIDIG which is part of that holding company. And he said, look, we see a lot more of you than you see of us at 21. So most other banks force you to apply to be you know, a bond trader or a prime brokerage salesman. I didn't know these industries even existed. So he said, we just, Goldman Sachs bought this new business that does electronic trading. So we're building technology and algorithms for hedge funds to do things in an automated way. He's like, this is the future. You seem to be entrepreneurial and like technology, you should go into this industry. It's like, he's like, trust me. I was like, okay. So my first clients at Goldman were DE Shaw and Two Sigma and, you know, Bridgewater, like all of these, you know, name brand. But at the time it was, you know, everyone was still a stock picker. You know, everyone said, oh, like I can pick, I, can, I have so much insight that I can tell that Apple's I have a better perspective on Apple than everyone else, and I'm going to pick stocks. And so the quant revolution in finance changed the way that stock selection is done. Like you either pay very low fees to index it, be an ETF, or you, you know, have quants doing it. And I think that taught me about fintech because it's how do you use technology to do lots of little events? It was the early days of fintech. And and then the other thing is the ability for somebody to be smarter than the crowd is very hard. It's very abnormal. And so I, I believe that in a lot of what we're doing on Upper 90 and a lot of what Tiger, I think, is doing is every VC is not smarter than everyone else. And there's like Tiger's just saying, look, we're going to index venture capital. And we're going to bring the returns down. Like, why would somebody pay two and 20 for somebody to pick venture firms? Or you're going to have firms like Upper 90 that are going to start saying, we're going to bring quantitative methods to venture. So we can use data to isolate the healthy parts and we can, you know, give you less equity to grow. And so I just think that the, the days, I think the future for VC and private equity is going to 
be much more competitive and there's fewer firms that are going to really be able to consistently pick winning companies. Like not everyone's going to be getting paid two and 20. So I, I'm excited to bring kind of what I learned. And I saw at Goldman where the quant element kind of came and disrupted the human element. And you need both. You need that inequity. You need humans and quants. Like, but I just think that you're going to see that coming to venture as well. It has to. And I mean, I guess that's a perfect segue. So like what got you to the point where like, okay, you've had this great career in financial services, you know, leading up to Goldman again, what point were you like, okay, time to go do something new and start this firm that's thinking differently? So I'd always wanted to do something more entrepreneurial. And, you know, I think as we get older, maybe my risk tolerance was a little lower than, than others. It was lower and you get comfortable. And number two is I've always, throughout my life, going back to the early days of a, being a kid, like doing things in a team. And so I remember when I was 13, I had to decide if I wanted to be a competitive tennis player or competitive soccer player. It was tough to do both. And I picked soccer and I just enjoyed winning and working with a team. It made me better. And I think certain people thrive when it's them. And so I, I, I think that one was the risk tolerance. Two was I really, I enjoyed, I was very fortunate to be at a great firm like Goldman for most of my career and in a space that was really transforming the industry. And so I think, and the third part is I, I never really found the right person to do something with. And so I think when I was spending more and more time with Jason and I had a few other mentors, uh, Mark Gerson and Ken Scicciano and Ross Guerin. And I think they, I saw an ability to, to bring my expertise and marry it with Jason's. You know, Jason was one of the OGs of building tech marketplaces and e-commerce marketplaces. And, and, and then they just pushed me to say, look, you're ready. Like go do something on your own. You know, don't join somebody. I think a lot of things like I was very, I was always lured to joining somebody else's startup. It's like, wow, I can go do something more fun and creative. And it still feels like a little bit warm and fuzzy because it's, I can, it's tangible. And, you know, Jason's feedback to me was like, don't go join someone else's startup, either start your own business or stay at a great firm like Goldman. Like, don't get stuck in the middle because you're going and joining an early stage business where you don't have much of the upside and you're taking just as much risk. So I think Jason really helped push me to go and start Upper 90. And I just felt like there was a real way to bring like a new way to finance, like what I had learned in the quant world and bring a lot of that efficiency to the private markets. And Jason, has I think almost 700 investments in the private markets as a founder. And, it, and I think it's rare for us, you know, to kind of bring those different expertises together. And, and when you bring two different areas of expertise together, you often create new opportunities. And so I think it just was a bit of luck and um, a bit of a push and, and a bit of being ready as well to, to, to start it. So what is upper 90 then? So I think Upper 90 is a firm that is creating a set of products that help founders grow more efficiently. And I think if I, you know, you read our slogan on our website, you know, there's, it's not how much you raise, it's how much you own. I would say the same thing to fund managers. You know, it's not like raise how much you need, not how much you can. And so we want to raise, we've kept our funds manageable and small because it helps us be aligned with our companies. And the other thing is when you raise institutional capital, you trade flexibility. Like, so they want you to do one thing. And so we said, we want to have more flexibility to solve a variety of problems for companies. 
And that might be credit, that might be equity, that might be helping somebody buy back their business, that might be giving somebody stock loan to buy their unvested options. Like, so we built our fund around seeing interesting deals and preserving flexibility. So we have 500 LPs that the majority are interesting entrepreneurs. And so over 50% of our deals come from our LPs and our LPs as mostly founders understand that the ability for us to do debt and equity together is good for founders. And so there's, I can't think of many funds that can do both. Most can do one. And, and so if you only do debt and you make your returns as a debt investor, then you want to stay in, in the company as long as possible at the highest rate of return possible. Cause that's as a debt investor, how you make your money. Well, if a company in a year is able to get bank financing, you want to get rid of Victory Park and all these other people that are not good for founders on average. And then you can't because that's how they make their nut. And if you have equity, like as a equity does better, these companies want to put as much money into the business as possible, as cheap as possible. So we say, look, if we can do debt and we do equity, then if the debt, if the company's performing really well and you can get cheaper debt, well, that's an equity positive event. We'll let you refinance our debt. And I just think being able to do both, it sounds so simple, but it's very rare that firms can do both. And I think it, it goes back to who your investors are. And my background coming from quant, which is more like credit and Jason's background coming from tech and entrepreneur, like there, there's very few founding members that like have those, you know, usually it's people's networks are very vertical and they do, you know, they've like spun out of insight. Like they're just, everyone's doing a bit of the same. So we said, let's have fun and do something different. Now, is there like a target that you look for, whether it's um, you know, stage of the company, uh, industry alignment, like what are the, what's the criteria that uh, Upper Dine is looking for? So I think to prove any idea, you need to raise some equity. And so we usually say, or get involved, somebody's raised the seed round, they've gotten to product market fit, they've proved the concept. And instead of going and raising kind of the next large series A, we say, look, if you let get involved with us kind of between the seed and the A, or maybe an extension to the seed, or definitely before the A, then we can you know, basically help you push out your series A. So we talk to founders, we say like, you know, delay your A. So you know, if there's one company, just to give you like a lot of this is just like, it's, it's basics, but there's a company that we invested in called Coastline that came from one of our LPs, um, Bebe Kim, who was an executive at LegalZoom, amazing entrepreneur. Coastline is building a 21st century driver's education school. So driver's ed is a public mandated activity by the government, but private industry that hasn't been changed in 50 years. And so these few guys from Google said, look, you know, waiting at the DMV for hours and not being able to schedule it on your app and, you know, getting into a jalopy and, you know, not being able to get other classes if you want, like upsells, like defensive driving. So they basically digitize that whole like workflow. And then their biggest expense was a buying a Toyota Prius, which they gave to all the drivers. So they were raising all this equity to buy a car that you could finance as an individual for like 5%, you know? Right. And yeah. so we said, why don't we just like, let's unpack your capital needs. So we gave them a credit facility to go and buy the cars. And then we gave them a smaller amount of equity to kind of build up the tech. And we've been able to then scale the debt as they show profitability without having to raise more equity. So I think the biggest thing about venture debt is that they, the, the venture debt lenders underwrite the equity investor. So if you raise more equity, they give you 20% of what you raise. Our stance is if you're buying good assets and those assets are performing, we'll give you more credit against those assets, regardless of who the, if you raise more equity or not. And so now Coastline is starting to roll up other subscale driving schools around the country. So now instead, like normally you'd raise more equity and go, Prove that out. We said, look, you're buying EBITDA really cheap. We'll give you more debt. Like, so I just think there's, you know, so many businesses now that 
have some, you know, healthier component. And that's just a simple example. And it's like, okay, that, that makes sense. That's an interesting business model. And it's not going to be a billion dollar business. And I think that's another really important factor. Like if we can get in early enough, because we do that in equity, like we don't need to have a unicorn outcome. And so I think there's a lot of great businesses that just kind of fall in between of like venture capital and friends and family. And I just think there's a lot of great businesses that can create really interesting returns that don't have to have like this unicorn outcome. Isn't that like a trick now? Like you see all these companies getting minted as unicorns and it's like, as an entrepreneur, you feel deflated, like, oh, you know, like we haven't hit this, you know, unicorn status yet. Like, what are we doing? And you look at the size of the rounds, the valuations, and you got to think of the, the exit has to be extraordinary for the fund to get what they need in terms of return, right? Like, so it's like, economics of scale based on the funds raised and the outcome is just, it's getting crazy. Yeah. You know, I just, again, I, I think of first principles. I, I find myself being a simpleton sometimes like in life, the people like the founders and early investors taking the most risk are making less than the later stage investors taking less risk. Mm-hmm. That to me seems like is going to change. Yeah. And so I would bet a lot of money that late stage equity and private equity is going to have lower returns than people think. There's way too much money and founders are getting smarter about how much they're giving away. So that's number one. And then number two is like the number of new businesses that are being created, if we did this podcast, I don't know if we could, but let's just say we did this podcast 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. We would be talking about how do we roll up coffee shops? How do we roll up gyms? You know, there's all these independent gyms. They're all subscale. You know, there's this amazing company, Planet Fitness, and they're rolling up all these gyms. So there's this amazing company Dunkin Donuts and they're rolling up all the, you know, they're, and now like Thrasio, who we helped create this Amazon aggregator space with, it's, they're just rolling up stores on Amazon. It's not that different. You know, it's, you have all these small businesses that are now, their shingle is online, but they have the same challenges that a coffee shop of old would have. Like I need inventory capital and I need to hire people and I need to spend money on marketing and I need to, you know, run my day to day. And, and so I think, you know, a lot of the same principles are just re kind of happening again online. And that like, what really excites me about upper 90 is like, you just have all these new industries that are starting where you need equity and debt. And it's like, and like Amazon third-party seller marketplace, you know, being a creator on YouTube, you know, you can start looking at you, you know, you can start a YouTube channel tomorrow. And let's just say you're operating it for a few years. And now you can say, look, I have these many subscribers that are paying. And so how can I bring some of my revenue forward against what I expect to be making on a go forward basis for YouTube? So I just feel like, you know, what we say, what's new is old. It's like, it's easy to start a business online, but you have traditional capital needs. And I think these markets are enormous. And that's what really excites me about like helping founders. And I also think the ability for somebody to be a solopreneur like yourself or somebody who's starting a store in Amazon, like think about the, 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 what Amazon and YouTube have done to reduce the friction to be your own boss. I think, you know, you, Amazon has 3 million third-party sellers. That's 3 million at a minimum jobs that Amazon's created. Thrasio has bought 200 of those. Amazon's created, <laughs> Thrasio's created 200 millionaires. Yeah. And so I just think like, I'm very excited about the ability for all these new businesses to be started online. That wasn't possible before you'd have to get a loan from a bank and get a real estate lease and, you know, you know, get one of the corner storefronts. And so I, I I'm very bullish on, you know, kind of says like a golden age to be an entrepreneur, but like that the technology has outpaced the financial solutions. Like you can start a store on Amazon, but how the hell do you get liquidity? So it's like tech fin versus fintech, you know? Yep. 
Yep. And we had uh, Carlos Cashman on the podcast. Uh, I don't know. I have to look at the episode, but it was maybe a, a year or so ago. And we broke down Thrasio and all the exciting things that they are up to. And um, it is interesting to see how, you know, the, the marketplace and the roll-up of Amazon sellers, it's just amazing what has been created there. And if you look like when you talked about, it's easy to create a business now, uh, you know, it's hard to execute, but it's easy entry. But if you look at Telebank, right, we talked about that earlier, you know, your dad was part of the, uh, like, I wonder how much capital they raised. They had to build out like a data center, like Oracle licenses and like, like web servers and all these like, like capital, like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's amazing how, uh, things have changed. Now your firm focuses on, uh, e-commerce and FinTech specifically, right? Yeah. So why'd you choose those two verticals? I, I think you stick with what, you know, I, I know FinTech, I come from that background. Jason knows e-commerce and our view is that capital has become a commodity as much as people in finance, you know, keep trying to pretend it's not. And I think we just have the most domain expertise and ability to add value in those verticals. If it's helping with customer acquisition or talent or, you know, all the things that go into it. And those in our experience tend to be a bit more capital intensive, like to run a FinTech, you often need software and balance sheet, which lends itself well to our, fund structure in e-commerce, you know, often you need the, you know, the, the technology, but also the capital for running your e-commerce business. So uh, they tend to be areas we know well and require like a larger quantum of capital. We need to talk like, how'd you come up with the name? I know the answer, but in case our audience doesn't. <laughs> I, I got to give credit to my wife. I was, you know, we're brainstorming when I was really ready to take the lead from Goldman and to do this. And, um, you know, I was like, you what are the streets you live on? You know, you know, all the typical and, you know, she knew soccer was really passionate to me and, you know, upper 90 is the top corner of a goal. It's kind of this indefensible, very niche, hard to hit area. And, and randomly we lived in the upper nineties on the upper west side, but it was really a, um, a soccer reference, um, you know, which, which I, I feel really excited about in it. And when I started it, I, I felt like our whole angle was finding these niche industries. Like the first company we always talked about when we first launched Upper 90 was this company called FilmRise. And they take data from Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and YouTube. They can track what people are watching online. So with that information, they can estimate what's the value of certain types of content online. And then with that information, they'll go to like PBS and BBC. They look at their TV libraries from the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, all this like long tail forgotten content. And they say, look, we know how much people will watch this on Netflix or YouTube. So they license the digital rights to all this long tail programming that is just sitting on the shelves and they repurpose it online. So they're buying revenue at like one time and they're selling it at nine times. And it's like probably like when somebody bought the syndication rights 20 years ago to like Seinfeld on TBS. It's just, you know, I'm buying the you know, Sherlock Holmes miniseries from BBC and, you know, how many people could watch that? Like a lot, you know, and I just think this whole long tail becomes internet makes it viable. But so, um, you know, so I was like all these kind of niche. So they were raising equity and our quants were like, why are you know, you're buying revenue at one time and selling it at nine times? Why are you raising equity? And so they're like, most of the founders, we want to help them understand like what is debt and how can they use it? Because most are just not aware. But anyway, I kept finding all these niche, like under the radar. Our first tagline was above market, above market returns from below the radar opportunities. You know, that was kind of more of an investor centric and it's shifted towards founders. But as I talked to my really good friend, it's like almost every company has a part of their business that could be financed with upper 90s debt. And so instead of it being like the top corner, it's like the center of the goal. It's just like every business has some part that's not appropriate for equity, you know? And I think it's kind of exciting to figure out how to make it more aware and understood by founders. Because once you go down this equity path, it's very hard to go back. And so it's like, we really need to do things like this and work with early stage investors and you know, I think that's the education and, and, and awareness is probably the biggest challenge. So the, um, the, 
one of the things that firms are providing now is, you know, value added services beyond just capital and, you know, advice. So uh, you know, I guess it's commonly referred to as the platform, right? So, so what other services does Upper 90 provide to, uh, to entrepreneurs? So Jason, this is something that I'd love to spend more time with you on this because I think everyone's offering just the same stuff. You know, we have, we'll introduce you to customers, we'll help you with hiring and, you know, I, I think it's become just kind of like part of the pitch. You know, when, when I talk to most founders, I'd say the majority of the time, they say they've gotten zero value from their investors, honestly. Um, and so Andreessen Horowitz, we feel was like the first firm that really took their care, like their management fee and reinvested it into their platform. Mm -hmm. and so they hired, world-class executive coaching, world-class HR, world-class marketing, you know, world-class customer acquisition, and, you know, kind of built almost like an investment bank of sorts for these companies. Um, so Jason and I often talk like, what are the next set of services that we can offer that really fit with the ethos of Upper 90, which is this founder-centric capital? So we call it almost like this founder agency. So when a founder and management team are getting started, they aren't thinking about tax planning. And so are you familiar with like, you know, QSBS qualified small business where if you invest at an early stage of a company, like it's under a certain valuation and the round size is under a certain amount to encourage startup investing, the government will give you up to a $5 million tax-free earn, earn out of your return. So if you make oh, up- Oh, yes, 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 yes. Okay, now oh, I know what you're talking about, yep. Now, if, if our whole thesis is like, how do, we felt, how do we help founders own more without sacrificing growth? Like, so part of that is how much do you own tax efficiently? And so as a founder, you can set up, you as an individual on the cap table, you get QSBS up to 5 million, or you can stack five trusts that give you five times that amount and you can have five different entities. So just think about that. You could have $25 million or five. So we, you know, help founders think about how to do estate planning, you know, before they have an event. Most people think of doing estate planning after they have an event. Yeah. That's amazing. I've never heard of that. <laughs> that's great. We just sit down like that's one. Um, we really try to help. I think talent is always critical and I think always hard and very subjective. And so I think, you know, we, we interview almost in all of our companies, their senior hires that they want to make. And I think that's like a big area where Jason and my backgrounds, like, I think we have a lot of experience, like if it's hiring a quant or hiring a head of sales or hiring a COO, we are very involved in either sourcing or interviewing talent because you know, that's every business is your people and including upper 90. Um, and then I think a lot of it's capital markets. So how do we go and continue if a company is growing really well, like there's a company called settle, which is like the new, the next bill.com amazing founder. He was growing faster than he expected. So we gave him a $5 million line of credit and it was growing with the 10, then it went to 15 and it needed to scale. So we went and pulled in other lenders that could help grow. And normally as a founder, like he would have to go and kind of source all this capital. The amount of time the founder spent on capital raising is gargantuan. So I think like one of the biggest areas of value we add is like from our fund and also just our network is being able to provide more debt as a company's growing, which is just not something that most companies are familiar with. And then the last thing I would say is like our goal, because we're equity and debt investors, think of us like two thirds debt, one third equity, like credit we feel is more differentiated and more valuable to founders, but we wanna be aligned into business. And it's like, how do we start setting up things that you can get to bank financing faster? So getting an audit set up, getting your underwriting set up, figuring out, you know, basically how to set up your flow of funds, getting the right legal counsel, getting the right tax counsel, getting the right, like all of those things, if you don't kind of invest in them early, 
will delay your ability to get to the next kind of graduated level of capital because you're not going to have the you can't go public if you don't have like ipo readiness like it's the same thing to get bank capital so i think like those are the kinds of things we do for like founders estate planning to talent to capital markets that i think are you know kind of building out this you know founder agency or like founder products and now we've also done stock loan so one of you know, like founders often or their management teams don't have the capital to go and exercise their options. So because we understand the company really well, we've been able to extend more credit for them to buy, get loans against their stock. So like there's all of these kind of like capital market solutions that like help founders is, is really how we want to package our services. And that's what we're doing. Well, along those lines, like what's your philosophy or just general thoughts about founders taking money off the table when they do raise an equity round that they're selling some of their shares and, you know, having a mini exit? not, you know, you know, I've heard different points of view on that. I, I, I think I'm supportive of it. I mean, I think founders that can get some peace of mind, I just think about my own experience, like driven people are driven and I think, you know, if people can get reasonable liquidity off of the table, I think that in many cases will help them focus even more so on their business because some of the anxiety is taken away. So I, this is, again, one of these areas where it's like we think that that's good for the founder. We support it. You know, and I just I would love to hear the counter argument. Yeah, it's definitely an older way of thinking where it's like, oh, the entrepreneur's interests are not aligned with the long-term outcome. Like, no, like you said, it's uh, it's an opportunity to have, you've worked so hard to have some liquidity, but there's a bigger picture goal that that entrepreneur definitely has if they're motivated. And if they weren't motivated, they wouldn't have gotten there in the first place. They wouldn't have raised money. So it's absolutely aligned with the interests of the investor. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah. We're also supportive, like in a lot of situations where, you know, for some reason, like the founders didn't really get an upper 90, like Jason Gusset Octane is like, you know, every company should have an upper 90 just gives you another muscle to like, experiment and to do things that you maybe you want to acquire business, maybe you want like, who knows. Um, and, you know, how many equity firms do you really need in your cap table? They all do very similar things. Like, and so I just think that it's becoming you know, when you, I mean, it's kind of the question you ask, like when, what are the other things you do to differentiate your capital and add value as a platform? Like when you have that answer, I mean, I would, I think that that's answered in a very uniform way. And so as, as more people just try to do the same thing, that's why I think Tiger's getting some, you know, people are concerned and also giving them some respect. Like there was a founders fund article. They're just like, look, Venture capital and private equity is making 25 to 30% returns. We think it should be 15%. And so we're just going to offer a higher price, which means less dilution for the founders. And we're going to do it without a board seat. And so it's like they're kind of attacking it from the late stage side. And we're attacking it from the early stage side. Like if you work with upper 90, like don't you, you should raise equity when you don't need to raise equity. Like the worst time to raise equity is when you need to raise equity. And so if you have kind of other tools to grow, then it gives you more leverage to decide when you should raise and at what price and on what terms. Like, and so I just, you know, we're not going to be friends with everybody, but you know, I think that's okay. It's, it's interesting just to see the different trends of the firms and what they're doing, like Tiger, you mentioned and, and others, but I was reading uh, Axios, Dan Premax email yesterday and he was talking about there's a new firm that's raised the fund to uh, exclusively focus on buying faded unicorns. <laughs> so there's already a fund that's prepared to attack these unicorns that don't quite make it for the next capital round. So it's just, it's like, oh, here we go. Um, so, well, you talked about hiring. That obviously is so critical and important for the success of a company. So what advice would you have for founders on building out the initial leadership team for a company? There, the, the first advice I would give is there's, there's no simple answer to hiring. So for example, if you're building an Amazon aggregator, like a Thrasio, you know, we have like 15 investments in that space globally. And they said, oh, well, 
we don't really understand this. We're just going to hire someone from Amazon. Like often the people that you hire directly from industry are a product of the system. And I think it just, you have to spend more time understanding, like, is that person, you know, benefited from the structure and just kind of being part of Amazon or do they, do they have a motor to go and be entrepreneurial outside of Amazon? And so I think it's really not taking like, we have this need, so we're going to hire somebody who just like on paper fits that need. And I think that's, I wish it was that easy. So that that's number one. Um, you know, number two, we've seen an increasing number of companies have like multiple CEOs. We have actually one company that has three CEOs. And I think at some point it just, you need to have clear responsibility and clear decision-making. And so when you have these multi or tri-headed groups, I think it really reduces abilities for decisions to be made. And so it's like, it's, it's, given, it's hiring people or even as you start a company, it's who really is a decision maker and like empowering that person to have the ability to like make decisions and not you know, have all these voices. Cause I, I think you need, we're even going through this at upper nineties, you know, letting people have more control over their lane and make decisions for their part of the business. And, and then number three is, I, I have just found that like in the quant world, the problems that some of the quants in wall street have been solving for the last decade, like, have been some of the most competitive battlegrounds on the planet. You know, everyone has to compete on a public market like the New York Stock Exchange every day. And so a lot of those, like looking at different industries and then bringing people into your industry. And it kind of goes back to my first point, like just don't hire somebody because like, well, I'm starting a FinTech, so I'm gonna hire somebody who's worked at Plaid because that's also a FinTech. You know, like you might wanna hire someone from like, you know, two Sigma or you might like, I just think there's certain raw skills. Like someone who's amazing at sales has that innate and it does, they don't have to have just done that job in another place. I just think when you try to hire someone who's like the looks perfect, it's often not the right hire. And so like be willing to like look at other industries and bring an athlete in that can learn your industry versus trying to hire someone who doesn't have those raw skills, but like has a perceived domain expertise because he had that job. That's great advice. I think companies definitely overlook that, especially when it comes to things like head of product management. It's like, oh, we need the domain experience. They need to have done this before in a consumer app that has scaled and FinTech. And it's like, okay, good luck. And then it's like, it's like, you just don't know. Is it like, you know, did the CEO have all these relationships for sales or was it the salesperson? Like, so I don't know. I think that's where you have to be willing to take some risks on the hires. And then if they're not the right hire, then make that decision quickly too would be my second piece of advice. Okay. What, what do you, uh, let, you know, just kind of round things out here outside of work. What do you like to do for fun? Yeah, you know, we, a big part of why we moved to Providence was just kind of getting that work-life balance. So my wife's a dermatologist and she had a great opportunity here. And I really wanted us as a family to move outside of the city and not raise our kids there. And so I think that the quality of interaction with the kids is amazing. I like played chess with my son last night. I have a tennis lesson tomorrow. Everything's within five minutes. So I think I like, I like being able to play sports again up here. Um, and like really just getting to do some of these activities with, with my kids. But I think with three young kids and a happy marriage and, you know, a startup ourselves. And I'm a big believer that, you know, while we're kind of in a hybrid work environment, I think before COVID, we moved to Providence and two years ago, kind of this month. And in my mind, I was like, why do you have to, no one should have to come into the office five days anymore. Like, you know, and, but you can't come in zero. Like there's a human connectivity that makes us who we are and you treat people with more empathy. And I just feel like you, you need to, so I think also if I have free time, I like to spend it with my team because you, you know, when you jump on a zoom, it's like, okay, what do we need to get done? And it's very tactical. And 
you know, I think everyone's doing three things at once and you just, you don't have that room to like get to know people and treat people nicely. And you just kind of start treating people like robots. And so I think it's also just making sure we spend time in person. So we do like fun activities with our team. Um, you know, we'll go on trips, we'll do, you know, different, we just created a head of people and culture as a formal role for our company. Um, and, and I just think a lot, a lot of the culture is just so hard when you're not all together. And so, I don't know, that's something that, you know, outside of work, it's, I enjoy that. And it's something that we're, you know, actively thinking about. Well, Billy, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great work you're doing at Upper 90 and exposing entrepreneurs to alternative ways of, you know, getting their company funded and obviously all the great advice along the way. Yeah, it's, it's fun. And I, you know, really appreciate the opportunity. And I'd love to just think of more, more ways that everyone's busy. So if it's, you know, Jason did a webinar for all of our founders on how to think about estate planning. You know, and it's just like, you know, I'd love to brainstorm with you and with your audience. Like, are there just some ways that we could, for topics that are interesting to people, have somebody talk about that to a wider audience? You know, we're just trying to brainstorm how to do this where more people can be aware, even if it's not the right fit for Upper 90. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come on today. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.